Faith Talk 570 WTBN Pinellas Park. Online at letstalkfaith.com. A service of the Salem. Portions of this hour have been pre-recorded for broadcast at this time. Odyssey. The following program was pre-recorded for broadcast at this time. Up next is Verse by Verse, sponsored by Verse by Verse Ministries. When, when God convicts you, don't make an excuse. Don't try to weasel out of the conviction. If God nails you, then accept it and receive it. And if it hurts, good. You have to be hurt before you're helped, like a surgeon who cuts you before he can help you. So be careful that you don't make any excuses. Well, it's my background, or you know, I was tired when I yelled at you. There are all kinds of excuses people could use. Well, you know, you caught me at a bad time. Listen, when is a good time? When is a good time to obey? I've heard it said that delayed obedience is the same as disobedience. And I'm convinced that that is true because while I'm putting off what God wants me to do, I'm not just sinning ignorantly, I'm sinning willfully. When a sermon or a Bible passage challenges us, how do we react? That's part of what we'll be considering today on Verse by Verse. Welcome. Pastor Steve Kreloff is our teacher. He's the teaching pastor at Lakeside Community Chapel in Clearwater, Florida. Today we're in the middle of one of Pastor Steve's sermons from Chapter 8 of Nehemiah as we look into the characteristics of a biblical revival. 1 John gives us three tests by which we can be sure that we have eternal life. and One of them is whether or not God has made a change in our attitudes and behavior. Those changes happen when God's Word convicts us and we respond the way he wants us to. Sometimes it's something we hear in a sermon. Sometimes it's something we read in our devotions. Here's Pastor Steve to tell us more. You know, there are many people who have devotions that are absolutely meaningless. Absolutely meaningless. They don't learn anything. They read it, and they pray, and they, they don't apply it to their lives, and they think that they're growing. And they can check off that that day they did their reading, they did their, their devotions, Uh, Somehow they think they can't open a commentary then, they can't open a concordance, they can't have any study helps. It's just going to happen in some mystical, spooky way that they're going to grow. It doesn't work like that. Let me just illustrate how, um, how this works in terms of how you can listen to a sermon and yet it not impact your life. Uh, I read this week about a man who, who uh, wrote this. This was his experience. Happened a number of years ago. Apparently, he was on some type of a boat going down a river. And here's what he said. He was a preacher. And, and just listen to this. This is very, very typical. Uh, I've seen things like this happen here. Every pastor could say something like this. This is this pastor's experience. We're coming down the Ohio. There's a pleasant company of some two score persons. They know that I'm on board and they come to me with a request. Will you give us a Sunday morning talk? And it's arranged. And I preach to them in my way. I talk to them taking for my text this passage in honor, preferring one another. So you understand he's on a boat. He's going down the Ohio River. They learn he's a preacher. Uh, He's a well-known preacher. They say, will you give us a Sunday service, Sunday sermon, and he speaks in honor, preferring one another. That's his text. I show them how beautiful it is. I illustrate it. I show them how beautiful it is to prefer those who are inferior. I tell them how grand and noble a man feels who treats his servants, the lowest of them, with a consideration which makes them uh, more manly. I can, uh, can see one another drop a tear 
or wipe it away. And so I go on, opening up the beauty of uh, disinterestedness and studying uh, one another's happiness. I keep talking to them in this strain until I perceive that dinner is ready to be served. And I give out a hymn and sung and I close the meeting. Then the gong sounds and every man tears for the dining door. For the dinner door, every man rushes for the table, pulling and hauling and trying to get the best place opposite the choicest dish. And everybody goes to eating with all his might. Nobody waits on anybody. Now remember, he's just preached on in honor preferring one another. And when they have gorged themselves, they begin to wipe their faces and say, we had a good sermon this morning. At the very first opportunity they had of carrying out the principle, their old nature, their old life, their old habits prevailed. Now, that's frightening. I notice nobody's really laughing. Well, a few. Um, You're probably silent because you're stunned. Listen, that happens a lot. Do you understand what he did? He spoke about preferring one another, and they cried. They thought it was a great sermon. And then they rushed out, and nobody preferred one another. Do you understand that a sermon is useless unless it's implemented? And they had an opportunity to implement it, and they did absolutely nothing with it. And yet we think we're growing. These folks aren't growing. And if we do the same thing or whatever the sermon is on, uh, we're not growing. We deceive ourselves into thinking we're growing. So uh, how should we respond to a sermon? That's what we want to look at this morning. And in Nehemiah 8, we're given, thank God we're given some things that you can get a hold on and you can implement in your life. We're given four biblical responses to the word. These are the four biblical responses they had to the word. And I believe it's a pattern for us. Now, let me say this. All these responses won't take place every time you hear God's word. But this is the general pattern most of the time. Okay? So you'll know. You'll know. Four responses to the word of God. The first response to God's word when it's preached in a sermon or any other time is sorrow. Sorrow. That's the first response. That's the first uh, way of responding to the word of God. Notice verse 9. Then Nehemiah, who was governor, and Ezra the priest and scribe and the Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people were weeping when they heard the words of the law. After listening to the word of God all day long, the congregation began to weep. They began to cry. Why? It's called conviction of sin. They were mourning over their sin. They mourned over their sin. They were grieved over their sin. They were exposed to what the law said, and they realized they hadn't done this, and they were sorrowful. This is what the New Testament refers to as as godly sorrow that leads to repentance. Repentance is a change of mind. It's a change of behavior as well. It's a, it's a change of our thinking. It's godly sorrow, Paul said in 2 Corinthians 7, leads to repentance. And while we may not shed literal tears all the time, when we hear God's word, our hearts should break. Our hearts should break. Unless it's a kind of message to build you up and encourage you, generally speaking, our hearts should break because the word of God reveals our sin. And we ought to be sensitive to the Lord and care enough that our hearts mourn over our sin. Romans 3.20 says, through the law comes the knowledge of sin. So as you read the word of God, you are convicted 
of your sin. And our response to that knowledge is to mourn. That's what Jesus meant when he said in the the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. When the Holy Spirit is really working in in your life, you're not hysterical. You're mourning. You're mourning. You're crying over your sin. When you listen to the word and you understand the word, it'll break your heart. It breaks your heart. Because you now know how you have sinned against God. Now let me explain to you. This is the difference between an unbeliever's sorrow and a believer's sorrow. When an unbeliever is, has his sin exposed, uh, he has some sorrow. He feels bad. He feels bad usually because of the consequences of his sin. He hurts somebody. And uh, he feels bad that also he was caught, quite frankly. A lot of his sorrow is in the fact that he didn't get away with it anymore. And he's sorrowful and he feels bad and he usually uh, makes some promises that he'll change, but he doesn't, so he feels more guilty than ever before. That's the sorrow of an unbeliever over his sin, if he has some sorrow over sin. A believer, on the other hand, the child of God, one of the marks of a child of God is that uh, when he sins, he's convicted because... Not, not primarily because of the consequences and not primarily because he was caught. In fact, not at all because he was caught. He is, he is mourning because he has sinned against his heavenly father. And he knows he has displeased God. And that really makes him sad. Even if nobody else knew about it. Even if there were no other consequences, he's brokenhearted because he has sinned against his heavenly father. He has sinned against the one who loves him more than he can comprehend. And therefore, his sorrow leads to repentance. Because he's brokenhearted, he will change his thinking, he will change his behavior. That's the difference. And that's, what, that's what's going on here. You know, conviction of our hearts sting. It just stings our heart. It just hurts. It hurts like nothing else. I know you've experienced that. Certainly, I've experienced that. The conviction of God stings. It, it, uh, it is a, a sorrow like no other sorrow. And the first step is in obeying God. That's the first step to dealing with this, is in obedience and pleasing the Lord. So what I want to say to you is don't resist God's conviction. As a Christian, it's, uh, there are ways to, to resist the conviction of God. So let me tell you uh, what not to do. First of all, don't make excuses. When, when God convicts you, don't make an excuse. Don't try to weasel out of the conviction. If God nails you, then accept it and receive it. And if it hurts, good. You have to be hurt before you're helped, like a surgeon who cuts you before he can help you. So be careful that you don't make any excuses. Well, it's my background. Or, you know, I was tired when I yelled at you. Well, listen, half the world is tired. The people who run the world, tired. You read the Gospels, and much of the time, Jesus was tired. The Apostle Paul was tired. So don't use that as an excuse. There are all kinds of excuses people could use. Well, you know, you caught me at a bad time. Listen, when is a good time? When is a good time to obey? Okay, another way of of, uh, being careful that you don't throw away resist conviction is don't dismiss dismiss conviction by not thinking about it. Don't dismiss it by, by just dismissing it from your mind. You know, there's conviction and you just don't dwell on that. You just go on to something else. 
I don't want to think about that. It's not pleasant. And I want to think about pleasant things. Be careful about that. I think it's a great danger that when we leave the church on Sunday morning, if God's convicted us, it's real easy to get distracted with other things. Oh, we're going out to eat? Oh, okay. We're going to go to somebody's house? Oh, we have to get in the car, got to walk in the parking lot. And before you know it, you're not, you're not even thinking about that. So the conviction stung and you went on to something else rather than letting, it have, letting God have his full work in your life and changing in response to that conviction. So be careful that you don't dismiss it from your mind. Think about it. Let it hurt you. It's, it, God has sent it to help you. For whom the Father loves, he disciplines. And we could add conviction. It's the same thought. Another way that we could resist the conviction of the Holy Spirit is by comparing ourselves to other people. God convicts you and then you think, you know, I'm bad, but I'm not as bad as him or her. So it's not, I, I can't be that bad. Listen, that's not the comparison. The comparison is the, the perfection of Jesus Christ, the high standards of the word of God. You can always find somebody you're doing better than. So you want to be careful that when conviction comes, don't think about the person sitting next to you. Well, you know, yeah, I need this, but she needs it a lot more than me. You want to be careful about that, that you don't take the conviction of the Spirit of God and start uh, being the Holy Spirit in somebody else's life. No, you just answer to the Lord for yourself. So don't compare yourself to any other person except Christ. Another way we could resist conviction is by getting angry at the preacher. I know it may come as a shock to you. But some might do that and refusing to receive the word of God. Let me show you an illustration of this in Acts chapter seven. The the man I'm named after, Stephen, was um, had this in Acts chapter seven. Beginning at verse 51, this is Stephen. If you can't get there, just listen. Stephen is preaching to the Sanhedrin. And uh, Stephen is telling them things that are deeply convicting. And, And notice they got annoyed at him. Listen to this in verse 51. You men who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears are always resisting the Holy Spirit. You're doing just as your fathers did. Now, is he telling them the truth? Absolutely. And which, which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who had previously uh, announced the coming of the righteous one, whose betrayers and murderers you've now become. You who received the law as ordained by angels and yet did not keep it. Now, when they heard this, and, and by the way, they heard, so, he said some strong things, didn't he? He said some strong things. They had to make a choice, get annoyed at Stephen or receive the conviction and respond to it. But they got annoyed at Stephen. He said, it says in verse 54, now when they heard this, they were cut to the quick. I mean, they were convicted. They felt bad and their tempers began to rise. They began gnashing their teeth at him. See, they just turned it around and it's, they said, it's your fault. But being full of the Holy Spirit, he gazed intently into heaven and saw the glory of God, Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, I see the heavens opened up and the son of man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and covered their ears and they rushed upon him with one impulse. And the rest of the, the chapter said they, they killed him. They stoned him to death. They covered their ears. They didn't want to hear it. They got annoyed at Stephen when they should have gotten annoyed at themselves. Now, we can do that. I don't think you're going to rush upon me and throw your hymnals at me, but I think you can get upset because something hits too close to home. It's, if it's based on the word, then don't resist it. If it's my opinion, you can get annoyed at me. 
But if it's based on the word of God, don't cover your ears and say, I don't want to hear this. It hurts too much. So be careful that you don't resist the word. Do you let the word break your heart? Do you really let the word of God break your heart? Do you allow God's word to, uh, to, to engulf you and, be, uh, and let you be overcome with grief? You know, I was thinking about it this week. Maybe as an overreaction to the very emotional emphasis of the charismatic movement, maybe some of us as evangelicals have uh, stifled emotion. Maybe we've gone to the other extreme where we're really afraid to shed some tears of sorrow. You don't want to do that either. You don't want to be controlled by emotion, but you don't want to deny emotion. If you want to cry, you cry. It doesn't make you more spiritual, but, but it ought to break our hearts about our sin. And if crying is the response of a broken heart, and usually it is, or many times it is, then just cry. The Jewish people of Nehemiah's day didn't hold back any tears. They were very emotional. They uh, reacted that way. Their grief was so intense. Notice verse uh, verse 9 again. They were so intense that Nehemiah and Ezra the Levites had to urge the people to stop weeping. Stop weeping. Notice verse 9. It says that Nehemiah was the governor, Ezra, the priest, the scribe, and the Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, this day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people were weeping when they heard the words of the, of the law. Now, why? If weeping is right, and the rest of Scripture certainly supports that, that we ought to uh, have sorrow for sin, and it was right for them to do this. When you blow it, you feel bad. You ought to feel bad. Why then did Nehemiah and Ezra and the others tell them to stop? Verse 9 says something very interesting. It, it says, this day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not weep or mourn. The day they chose to weep over their sin, was a special day. It, it so happens in the Jewish calendar that this was New Year's Day. This was a day, uh, a feast day in God's calendar for Israel because if you look at Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 2, it says, Then Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly of men and women and all who could listen with understanding on what? The first day of the seventh month. If you go back, and you don't need to do this now, but if you go back to Leviticus... In Leviticus, uh, where he's listing the feast days, Leviticus tells us that the first day of the seventh month was the day called the Feast of Trumpets. The Jewish people were to worship the Lord that day. They were to rest from their labors. They were to rejoice in the Lord. They were to blow trumpets. They were to celebrate. It was a day uh, of... uh, Uh, really like a New Year's Day. It was actually the first day of the civil year. They actually had another day that began the the calendar year, but this was the first day of the civil year. It's when plowing and planting began. And uh, we we even call it today Rosh Hashanah. It takes place, uh, maybe you've heard that, takes place in September uh, of uh, every year, Rosh Hashanah. And Jewish people today celebrate. That's what this day was. It's a day for feasting, not a day for mourning. And so Nehemiah and Ezra and the others said, Okay, stop your weeping. You've wept enough, stop it. And it leads us to a second response to the word of God. The first is sorrow. Sorrow that leads to repentance. The second response is service. Service to the Lord. Notice verses 10 through 12. Then he said to them, go 
Eat of the fat, drink of the sweet, and send portions to him who has nothing prepared, for this day is holy to our Lord. Do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be still, for the day is holy, and do not be grieved. And all the people went away to eat, to drink, to send portions, and to celebrate a great festival, because they understood the words which had been made known to them. So Nehemiah and Ezra instructed the people to celebrate the Feast of Trumpets by doing three things. Number one, eat of the fat. Uh, I don't think this refers to animal fat because that would violate the law. Leviticus chapter 3 verse 17 says that that's forbidden to drink the blood of an animal and to eat the fat. So what he must have been saying is uh, have rich and tasty foods, probably foods that have been prepared in oil. Secondly, drink of the sweet. Drink some sweet drinks. And uh, thirdly, send portions of food to those who have nothing. In other words, uh, go, enjoy some, uh, some good-tasting food and sweet drinks and send some of it to those who have nothing. That, that's what they said to do. And this is precisely what verses 11 and 12 tell us that they did. But the key to understanding what's going on here is that little phrase at the end of verse 10, do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. Now, what does that mean? Joy of the Lord is your strength. Let me put it together for you. It is, it is one thing to be conscious and sorrowful for sin, and well, we should be that, but it is another thing to be so overwhelmed by our sins and our failures that we become introspective, that we do nothing but mourn. That's what they were trying to, to uh, protect themselves from. Nehemiah and Ezra want these people to have, they do not, I should say, they do not want these people to have an unhealthy attitude of mourning. There's a real danger to that. There's a real danger to draw inward and to be so consumed with your failures that you think about nothing else but your failures. We have all met Christians like that. They're always down. There's no rejoicing. They're they're always disturbed about their sin. And uh, that's what they wanted the people of God not to do. Instead, they said, go worship the Lord and serve others by sending food to them. In in other words, get your minds off of yourself and your failures. You've already wept. You've already been convicted, but don't stay there. Move on. Worship the Lord and serve others with joy. And that's the key. That's the key. The reason so many of us aren't experiencing any lasting joy. The reason so many of us at times are depressed and down and and we're not experiencing what the Bible says in rejoicing, it's because we're too introspective. We're too self-centered. We're too wrapped up in us and and me and what I don't do. You got to know what you don't do, but don't be dwelling on it all the time. Have joy. You see, joy comes when we serve others and worship the Lord. That's the key to joy. It's not that difficult. Joy comes when I get my mind off of myself and I minister to other people. That's where joy comes. And I'm pleasing the Lord. That's joy. When you take an interest in worshiping God and serving other people, you will be joy. Though in the flesh, it seems like the, the natural thing to do is just think about myself all the time and, uh, and, and deal with my sin. And God says, no. No, the spiritual thing to do, if you really want joy, is to serve others, not yourself. You say, where am I going to get the strength to serve others? Listen, you have a servant's attitude. God will give you joy and he'll give give you the strength. The joy of the Lord is your strength. When you have a rejoicing heart to serve others, you'll have the strength to do what God wants you to do. 
It really is amazing, isn't it, how serving others can bring us joy? In fact, a focus on the needs of others is often great medicine against mild depression or discouragement. We're about out of time today, but Pastor Steve will continue this topic on the next Verse by Verse. Pastor Steve Kreloff is the teaching pastor at Lakeside Community Chapel in Clearwater, Florida. The address is 1893 Sunset Point Road. For service times and other information, you can call Lakeside at 727-441-1714 or go to the website, lakesidechapel.com. That's 727-441-1714 or lakesidechapel.com. If you missed part of this series on the characteristics of a biblical revival, you can get caught up on the message archive page found on our website, versebyverseradio.org. There's also a giving page if you'd like to help support this ministry. Without the gifts and prayers of listeners like you, we wouldn't be able to stay on the air. So thank you for your generous gifts and faithful prayers. This is Jerry Peterson. The great 18th century preacher George Whitfield wrote concerning repentance, Many in our days think they're crying, God forgive me, or Lord have mercy on me, or I'm sorry for it, is repentance, and that God will esteem it as such. But indeed, they are mistaken. It is not the drawing near to God with our lips, while our hearts are far from Him, 